Thank you, Drew and worship team. Uh, if you have your Bibles, that turns me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7 is where we're going to be at today. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, today is uh, the fifth Sunday of the month, so it's Family Worship Sunday. So kids, you guys are going to be staying in here for church. And um, I forgot to ask the ladies in the office to make the kids worship guides. And so uh, if you guys need to use these parents and uh, have your kids... Uh, draw pictures or take notes or whatever, I encourage you to use that, but we're going to be uh, looking into uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. We're going to be going to a place called Mizpah, Mizpah. Uh, the days immediately following uh, September the 11th, there's this iconic picture that emerged that was taken in those days immediately following September the 11th of President Bush with his bullhorn on top of the rubble at what is now, what was then uh, the World Trade Center Towers. And there on top of the rubble with his bullhorn, President Bush said, uh, New York City, we hear you. Uh, all of America hears you. And the whole world will soon hear you. Right? It was that moving moment where George Bush took the reins of leadership in our country and he led us through that desperate time of darkness, that, the national agony and pain that we felt in those days following September the 11th. 3,500 years ago, God raised up another leader that the people of God in that day needed to hear and that the church today needs to hear, the world today needs to hear. You say, who was that leader that God raised up then, that spoke powerfully then, that speaks powerfully today? Who was that leader? His name is Samuel. Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7 is where we're going to be at. And 1 Samuel... Chapter 7 gives to us the story of um, the Philistines, the nation of Israel, and Samuel himself. But really, chapter 7 in the book of 1 Samuel is part of a larger section, pericope of Scripture, called uh, uh, 1, 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7. Chapters 4 through 7. Chapter 4 is really a transitional chapter in the history of Israel. Eli was the priest at Shiloh, along with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The Bible calls these two sons scoundrels, right? So anybody have kids that are scoundrels? No, you don't have to raise your hands on that one. Right? But the Bible said that Eli's sons were scoundrels, right? Life in Israel at that time was marked by Philistine influence and oppression. Philistine uh, uh, influence and oppression. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Let me just kind of set the stage for us here. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says that Israel was camped at a place called Ebenezer. Ebenezer. We're going to see that place again in chapter 7. Or we're going to see that name rather again in chapter 7. But the Israelites were camped at a place called Ebenezer. While the Philistines were camped at a place called Aphek. Aphek and Ebenezer. Now, if I'm butchering my Hebrew language, uh, you guys can see Bichu afterwards, and he'll, he'll fix my mispronunciations. I told Bichu, I said, it is intimidating uh, preaching from the Old Testament knowing that you have a Hebrew PhD, PhD student sitting on the front row. Uh, but anyways, that's a whole other story. All right, so, uh, and so the Philistines and Aphek, uh, the Israelites at Ebenezer, they go to battle, and that day, 4,000 Israelites lose, or lose their lives, or killed in battle. So the nation of Israel is humiliated, they're decimated, they're distressed, 
And so they said, listen, what we need here on this battlefront is we need the Ark of the Covenant. And so they sent messengers back to Shiloh where uh, Eli was. And they said, send us the Ark. And Eli objected. He says, no, you don't take the Ark to the battlefront. Eli's sons, remember the scoundrels? They said, no, we're taking the Ark. And they carried the Ark to the battlefront And later on, that battle raged again. And now 30,000 Israelites died. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. 1 Samuel chapter 4. News comes back to Eli when he learns what happened. He learns that his sons died, were killed in the battle. But what literally killed Eli is that when he learned that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines, the Bible says that he fell over in his chair, he broke his neck, and he died. Phineas' wife went into labor, and she gave birth to a son, and she named her son Ichabod. The glory of God has left. The glory of God departed. And so not only was life in Israel marked by Philistine influence and oppression, but the Ark of the Covenant had been ignored. Uh, the, the Philistines, they, they rejoiced over their, their victory over Israel. They were triumphant. Baal had, had prevailed. Yahweh was defeated. And so they took the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. They took it to one, the Philistines had five leading cities in their region. And they took it to city number one, Ashdod. And they put the, temp, uh, put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. The next day, the Philistines, they went into the temple to worship their god, Dagon. And there was Dagon toppled over on the floor. And so they stand up their god. You kind of get the picture, right? They stand up their god there and they stand them up. Next day, they go back into the temple of Dagon. And, and Dagon has fallen over. And this time, his arms and his legs are broken off. And all there is left is the torso of Dagon. And so they stand up a miniature version of Dagon, the torso, right? And the hand of God, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 5, is the hand of God came against the Philistines. And um, a plague broke out against the Philistines, probably something similar to the bubonic plague, a disease that was carried by rats. And so the people of Ashdod said, we don't want this ark here. So they sent it to city number two. They sent it to Gath. Anybody remember who came from Gath? Who? Goliath, yeah, so... Goliath the giant came from the city of Gath. And same thing happens there. A plague breaks out. And they say, we don't want this ark. And so they send it to Ekron. The people of Ekron are going, we don't want the ark. Don't send it here. And guess what happened? The same thing happened at Ekron. And the Philistines are saying, hey, we've got to do something with this ark. We've got to send it back to Israel. We don't want it. Well, we can't send it back empty-handed. We have to give it an offering. And so they made these five golden rats five golden tumors, and they put this ark on a cart, tied it, hooked it up to two cows, and they sent it back to Israel with this offering on it, and it went to the city of Beth Shemesh. And in the city of Beth Shemesh, there was some man that opened up the ark to look into it, and the Lord struck them dead. Seventy men in the city of Beth Shemesh died. And so verse 1 of chapter 7 says that the ark was sent to a place called Kiriath-Jerim. And that's where our story picks up there. As a result of this ark being stored at a, man's name, a man named Abinadab's home, right? 
tucked away in his barn, put the, bark, the, the ark out of sight, out of mind, stored it in the barn, and for 20 years, this ark was hidden. It was ignored, and as a result, idolatry began to grow. It began to become widespread, and it began to increase. And we're going to see this idolatry going on, increasing in the nation of Israel. We're going to see here in a moment that Samuel's message to the people that had, was, Samuel's message was delivered to a people who were steep, uh, who had slipped into deep idolatry. And it was as, it was through their descent into darkness that God raised up this uh, judge named Samuel to lead his people back to the Lord so that they might receive his help. The Lord would raise up Samuel in his grace. We can really kind of, as we think about this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 7, there's really two words that you could uh, use to, dis- to understand it. God's sovereignty and God's grace. God is going to rule over his people and God is going to be gracious to his people. And we're going to see that here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And so let's read God's word. Uh, that's just kind of sets the stage of where we are in 1 Samuel chapter 7. It gives us the background so we can understand what's going on. Let's read God's word. We're going to look at two parts in this chapter, Samuel's message and Samuel's memorial. And we're going to try to learn from that as it relates to our lives today. So beginning with verse 1 of 1 Samuel, let's read God's word. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and they took the ark of the Lord And they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill. And they consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time. Twenty years in all. The end of verse 2. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. And so Samuel said to the Israelites, "If, If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid... Rid yourself of all the foreign gods and Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the Israelites, they put away all their Baals and their Ashtoreths and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah. So he called the people to go to this place in Israel called Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and they poured it out on the ground before the Lord. We're going to take a look at that in a moment. What was the significance of that? And on that day, they fasted and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as the leader of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord in Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. And while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed 
out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtered them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it, notice the name, Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And so the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines, the towns of Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured uh, from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. And from year to year he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel and all those places. And he always went back to Ramah where his home was. And there he held also held court for Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. Well, let's consider what God is saying to us here in this passage. Having read God's word, let's ask God now to speak to us. I forgot to pray at the beginning. Let's ask God to speak to us. Father, we stop here not out of perfunctory business like we're supposed to do this before the message, but God, we stop here because we confess that unless you open our eyes to understand your word, we're... We can't do it on ourselves, by ourselves. We need you. And so I ask, Father, for your grace to open our eyes to see so that we might understand, that we might know, and that we might do what you're telling us to do here in your word. For we pray and ask this all through the name of Jesus. Amen. As I said earlier, the message can be divided into two parts, Samuel's message, Samuel's memorial. Let's take a look at his message. And his message was simple, and his message was direct, and that was return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. We see that in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, a long time passed, uh, t- some 20 years in all, then all of Israel returned to, back to the Lord. And so Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you return to the Lord, do this, do this. Let's not hurry past Verse 2, if we do, if we just rush past verse 2, I think we were in danger of missing the significance of what Samuel was saying and what God was doing then and what God is wanting to say and do today. Scripture says that a long time passed, 20 years in all. So what is this period of time referencing? It's referencing the defeat at Ebenezer that happened some 20 years earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It references back to the death of Samuel. It remembers back to the time that the Ark of the Covenant had been ignored and had been entrusted into the care of Abinadab and his son Eliezer. 20 years have passed. And what's been going on during these 20 years? Well, I think 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 1 gives us a clue. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says that the Word of the Lord came to Samuel. I think during these dark years in Israel's history when the people were defeated and they were discouraged and, and, and subdued and while they were wandering away from God embracing the religion of the Philistines, Samuel was faithfully proclaiming the Word of the Lord. And for 20 years, he was calling the nation of Israel to come back to the Lord. Like the prophet Jeremiah, 
He has been calling the people to return, to come back to the Lord. And then suddenly after 20 years, something changes. And the Bible says that all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord, returned to the Lord. You say, what happened? Commentators believe that the turning point that caused this turnaround in the life of Israel was the death of Samson. Samson, remember Samson? Right, the the judge of, of long hair and strong strength, right? Yes, no, you guys don't remember Samson? Yeah, okay, there you go, thank you. Uh, uh, Sam, uh, Judges chapter 13 through 16. Samson was given, Samson and Samuel were contemporaries, right? And Samson was, was endowed with um, God-ordained strength. And his mission in life was to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. And although he had been endowed with supernatural strength, Phil, uh, Samson did not subdue his own fleshly appetites. And he pursued the Philistine women, three of them, married two of them. His third wife was Delilah. You remember Delilah? She cut off his hair. And he did not know that the Spirit of God had left him. And so the Philistines bound him up in chains, gouged out his eyes, led him off to the city of uh, Gath where he was uh, reduced to servitude, grinding in the mill. And the Bible says that Samson was the Philistines. They brought him bound in chains to the temple of Dagon. And there Samson prayed to the Lord and he asked God to give him strength. And they said, the Bible says, he said, put my hands between the pillars. And he put his hands between the two pillars. And he pushed out the pillars. And the Bible says that in the day of his death, more Philistines died in the day of Samson's death than in his life. Commentators believe it was the death of Samson that awakened the people to turn back to God. Do you remember what it was like in the United States the days after, the months after September the 11th? There was this devastation in New York City that awakened something inside the soul of America. I believe something similar to that was happening here in the, in the nation of Israel. And there's a principle here for us that we need to take note of. And that is that God will use whatever means pain if necessary to turn people back to himself. God will use whatever means pain if necessary to turn people back to himself. You say, what are the means that God uses to turn people back to himself? Theologians call this the, the means of grace. You say, what are the means of grace that God uses to turn people back to himself? Uh, God uses his word, right? God uses his word. One of the things I appreciate about our student ministry being led by Joe and Courtney and Jeff and Hannah, Kevin and Steve and Suzanne, and if I'm missing anybody, I'm sorry, Shelby, uh, working, their, their commitment is to the Word of God, a firm commitment to the Word of God. It is their belief that God will use the Word of God to establish our students. It's the Word of God that can divide and separate, the Bible says, truth from error, flesh from spirit, worldliness from godliness. It's not a bunch of worlds that students need, it's the Word of God students need. That's the place we could have said But, are students the only one that need the Word of God? We need the Word of God. All of us, right? 
And it's the Word of God that must work powerfully in our lives. God uses prayer. One of the ways that God works in turning people back to himself is through the prayers of his people. We see Samuel here interceding and praying for the nation of Israel. And another way that God works in the lives of people is through pain. Through pain. The death of Samson, the humiliation of the nation as their, their deliverer was this strong man was reduced to servitude and blindness was a wake-up call to the nation. And the Bible says that it was upon his death that the nation lamented after the Lord. And so don't miss the power of God using pain in our lives. And sometimes our tendency as people, parents, right? Kids are making poor choices and they're suffering the consequences of those choices. And in our flesh, we want to say, what? I told you, you deserve it. But we don't. But the heart of a parent, we have kids making the wrong choices. They're suffering the consequences. They're in the pain. The heart of the parent is what? Let's take the pain away. We sometimes, hearts of compassion... We begin to work against what God might be doing in the use of pain in the lives of the people that we love. Does it make sense? Am I, am I clear here? God uses pain to turn people back to himself. And notice what happens when people begin to turn back to him. Returning to the Lord is marked by three things. Number one, returning to the Lord is marked by reconciliation. Notice what the Bible says. It says that all of Israel... All Israel. Scripture says that all of Israel lamented. Returning to God is marked by reconciliation. There is a coming together. There is a corporateness that happens. That, that when God begins to do a work in our lives individually and as a community, that we come back to the Lord together. Returning to the Lord is going to be marked by a desire to go to those that you have sinned against to go to those that you have wronged and say, I need to make things right with you. I need to ask you for your forgiveness. I want to do where I've wronged you. I want to correct that. I want to make that right. It's reconciliation. Evidence of returning to God. There's going to be a desire to be reconciled with those that you have wronged, that you have hurt, that you've sinned against. Number two, returning to the Lord is going to be marked by repentance. It says that in the another translation that I was using this week in my study where it says that in the NIV where it says that the people of Israel uh, returned back to the Lord. It says that the people of Israel lamented before the Lord. They lamented after the Lord. And that idea there of lamenting, the word there is the idea of mourning and wailing. It's a brokenness that is, it is a return of God that is marked by brokenness before God. We can say this, that lamenting is grieving over uh, being grieved by what grieves God. Being grieved by what grieves God. That repentance is the things that, that break the heart of God. Now break my heart. Right? When I return to the Lord, I'm not going to be laughing and finding humorous or having an attitude that says, well, they deserve it. I'm going to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. 
There's going to be a lamenting, a grieving that happens. And then returning to the Lord is not only going to be marked by reconciliation and repentance, but it's going to be marked by rededication. Did you hear what Sam, Samuel said in verse 3? He said, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, do this. And notice what he said. He said the first thing is you need to remove, you need to get rid of your, rid, rid yourselves of all the gods of the Philistines, the Baals and the Astras. There can be no place and there can be there, there is no place and there can be no place for the false gods and for cherished sin if we're going to return to God, right? Returning to God always begins by removing, removing something out of our lives. We can't add God to our lives and hold on to our cherished sins. We can't do it. It's always repudiate, renounce, remove, get rid of it. In the place of pride, we must humble ourselves before God. In the place of greed and hoarding things for ourselves, God says, no, you must become, repentance is going to be marked by a generosity and a willingness to share of the things that God has given. Lust is going to be uh, replaced with accountability and says, listen, I can't uh, have unmonitored viewing to my computer. I need to be accountable to that so I can live a life of purity. Rebellion. I need to do it my way. I mean, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do my own thing. And it's going to be marked by submission. And the point is, is that sin must always be dealt with in our lives and removed from our lives. Samson, Samuel's contemporary, did not restrain his flesh. Instead, he pursued Philistine women and died in bondage to the Philistines. And we see something in the life of Samuel or Samson, and that is that whatever we allow to live in our lives of the flesh will bring about death in our lives. So if I allow lust to remain in my life, it will bring about death. If I allow rebellion to, to remain in my life, it will bring about death. If I, if I allow deception to remain in my life, it will bring about death. And so we need to deal with it. We need to remove it out of our lives. And then notice what Samuel said. Samuel says, not only must you rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks, he says, you must commit yourself to the Lord. You must commit yourself to the Lord. That word there, to commit yourself, is the word to establish, to make firm. In the south, we'll say things like fixing, right? Am I getting it close to y'all? Fixing. Is that correct? Yes, no? Fixing. You need to fix your heart on the Lord. Or other places of the country, we might say things like, nail it down. Nail it down. Samuel here is saying, nail down your commitment to the Lord. Nail it down. That nailing it down is illustrated in verse 6, where it says, remember what it says, that they, they gather together at Mizpah, and what do they do? They, 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 they uh, uh, gathered water, and they... They drew the water and they poured it out on the ground. What was going on with this water that's being, these pitches of water being poured on the ground? What was going on there? I think what the people of God were saying there before Samuel was this, is just like you can't take this water back once it's been poured out on the ground, we're not taking back our commitment to the Lord. We're nailing it down. There, there was a visible demonstration of their commitment to God. They were nailing it down. And then Samuel said, and serve him only. Remove the cherished idols, 
Remove the chair of sin out of your life. Nail down your commitment to God. Serve Him only. It's the rededication of your life. It says, Lord, I'm following you. I'm all in with you. Jesus said it this way. You can't serve um, God and who? Money, right? It's always one or the other. You can't serve God and try to please people. You can't sing your praises to God on Sunday and try to get on without God on Monday. It's always serve the Lord and serve Him only. Now listen, there's a false belief that is being spread around the world that is, when I say spread around the world, spread throughout the world, so not like globally, but it is globally, but it's like infiltrating every parts of our, the fabric of our lives. And this false belief is creeping into the church. Now let me, let me here's the false belief, and then I'll show you the application as it relates to the church. The false belief is this. Um, It doesn't matter who you believe as God as long as you believe in a God. That, that's the false belief in the world, right? So you can have Muhammad or Jesus. It doesn't matter. You can have uh, Buddha or, or, or um, you know, the Dalai Lama. It doesn't matter. Just have a God. Pick a God. Have somebody. That's the false belief that's being built, sold to us throughout the media, entertainment, educational systems, everywhere we look, it's being sold. Just every God is alike. Just have any God. doesn't matter what God you have. If you, want to be, if you want to be your own God, be your own God. It doesn't matter. Just have a God. And this is how the lie has crept into the church. We who are believers in Christ, well, we're, we're offended. We're, we're offended by that. There is no God but the triune God, right? Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? And we confess that, yes. But I'm going to follow God in my terms. That is how that belief has crept into the church. I'm going to follow God in my terms. Uh, I'm going to follow God. I, I, this, I'm going to accept this part of the Bible, but I'm not going to accept this part of the Bible. I, I'm going uh, to uh, affirm the holiness of God on Sunday, and I'm going to sing holy, holy, holy as God. And Monday, well, it doesn't matter what I do as long as I'm happy. Uh, I believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ on Sunday, but on Monday... The will of Kevin rules. And that false belief that is spread throughout the world has crept into the church. And Samuel says, serve him only. Serve him only. This is what it means to return to the Lord. And so, we read these verses. 1 Samuel chapter 7, wherever I'm at in the Bible. We read these verses and we think, oh man. Verse 6 They've poured the water on the ground. They're saying, we've nailed down our commitment. We're coming back. We're going to serve only the Lord. Samuel, uh, we've sinned against the Lord. They're confessing their sin. They're humbling themselves before God. And, and, and we think, great. Everything is good, right? They've come back. But everything isn't good, is it? There's a warning in verse 7. 
And verse 7 gives to us a, a warning for us as people who have returned to the Lord. And here's the warning. And the warning is this. Whenever and wherever, here's the warning, whenever and wherever the Spirit of God renews and revives, the evil one will also be at work. Whenever and wherever the Spirit of God renews and revives, the evil one will also be at work. We see that in verses 7 through 11. Look at what verse 7 says. And when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And so they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Wherever, whenever God is at work, Satan is always at work. He's always near. His work is always to counteract and counterfeit the work of God. He's always going to be counting on, you can count on the Satan countering something. Pun intended. Walter Kaiser, the preeminent Hebrew, the evangelical Hebrew scholar of our time. I'm not sure if Walter Kaiser is still alive. Lived up in Wisconsin. I was able to hear him preach a couple times. Dr. Kaiser said this in one of his books. Mark it well. Mark it well. Whenever there are deep stirrings of the Spirit of God in the renewing and reviving of lives, there the evil one will also be just as active in attempting to counter all the good work that has been done. His tricks are too many and varied to be listed here, but the people of God would be foolish to overlook them or be ignorant of them. Accordingly, just as God was stirring the hearts of Israel at Mizpah, the devil was rousing a mistaken judgment among the Philistines. They believed the Israelites had assembled at Mizpah in order to launch a national revolt against their rule over them. Satan's at work. People of God returning. Hey, Israel's going to rebel against you. You guys got to go down there and take it. And so they're, they're marching, they're coming. And notice the effect when the Israelites, they look out from Mizpah and they see the Philistines coming. They say, Samuel, you got to pray for us. We're going to die here. And notice the effect of the Philistines coming against the Israelites at Mizpah. Fear. One of Satan's most favorite tactics, most relied upon tactics, is the arousal of fear in the people of God. Fear is the opposite of faith. Whenever we're afraid, we rush ahead of God. You think of King Saul in the Old Testament, right? Samuel said, don't go to battle, wait till I get there. And Samuel said, oh, time is right. We got, we got, a, we got a fight when, when we got daylight. We got to go, right? And he lost his kingdom because of his disobedience. Fear. When we're afraid, we take matters into our own hand. God, I'm not going to wait on you. I'm not going to trust you for this. I got to do this now. I got to do what's best for me now. And the response of fear is always against God. That day, the people at Mizpah, their response was spot on. Samuel, pray for us. And there's something that you and I need to know. And we need to remember, and that is this, that every one of us here this morning need an intercessor. We need an intercessor here. Samuel is a type of Christ Samuel stood between the threat of the Philistines and the people of God. He stood between them before God. He brought the people, the needs of the people before God. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 5 says, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
And you and I need Jesus Christ to be our mediator. Now listen to me. Jesus Christ is the only one that can stand between you and God. He's the only one. Jesus Christ is the only one that can stand between you and God for you before God, right? If Jesus Christ is not your mediator, I, I, I just say it as clear as I can. You are dead even while you live. If Christ today is not your mediator, even while you are here alive physically, you are dead. You and I, every one of us, need Jesus Christ to be our mediator. He's the only one that can be our mediator. He's the only one that can stand before God for you and for me. And we need to repent of our sin. We need to believe that Jesus Christ not only died, his death was sufficient to pay for all my sin, but God raised him to life. We need to confess him as our Lord. We must do this. And today, if you're here and you have not uh, responded by faith to Jesus Christ, God, I believe, is drawing you to him today. Come to him today. I am in a world of hurt. We still got communion, and I still got a half a message to go. Cowboys don't play till six. Uh, let, me, let me just summarize uh, verse ten, right? Uh, Moses, uh, Samuel prays. Um, uh, verse eleven, no, verse ten. The Lord thundered, thundered from heaven. His thunder was so great that the Philistines panicked. They fled. The Israelites chased them, routed them, defeated them. The Bible says that the, that day was the day that the Philistine oppression and influence was broken. It was broken. Why? Where did it start? It started when they turned back to the Lord. That was Samuel's message, return to the Lord. There's that warning. The warning is this, that God is going to, whenever God works, Satan is always going to be at work. And because the Lord delivered the people that day, because they had turned back to him, notice what Samuel did. Samuel's memorial. He, his memorial is that we are to remember the Lord's help. Look, I'm just going to look at verse 12, and then I'll just, we'll try to wrap this up here, right? Samuel took a stone, set it between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. All right, so let me, um, let me come down here and we'll talk and then we'll be wrapped up. Okay, we're good? Can, you guys good back there? All right, here we go. Let's go. Um, Mizpah and Shen, right? Now, we don't know where Mizpah and Shen is today. If you go to Israel and say, hey, where's Mizpah and Shen? They look like, what are you talking about, Mizpah and Shen? Right? We don't know where Mizpah and Shen is. But in the days that this book was written to the people of God, First and Second Samuel was written, Mizpah and Shen was somewhere, and they knew where it was, right? It would be like you and I today. Uh, um, Route 66, Detroit to Los Angeles. Remember the old highway, Detroit, Los Angeles, right? And you, you'd say it like this. Um, it was outside of the Cadillac graveyard, right? And if you know Route 66, you'd say, oh, Cadillac graveyard. Go up to Amarillo, go outside of Amarillo, a little bit to the west, there's the cars in the ground. Cadillac graveyard. Yeah, I got it. Mizpah and Shan. You understand what I'm saying? Mizpah and Shan, the Cadillac graveyard of the Old Testament, right? You go there, there's a stone called Ebenezer. That Ebenezer stone's important. Because that stone was a declaration of faith. It was a declaration of belief. And um, what, was, what was happening there? Give me my first point, John. I don't have my notes. Uh, 
It was a, it was a, they declared a, a renewed dedication. Yes, okay, so Ebenezer. Remember, remember where their defeat, their defection started? It started at the battle when they were camped at a place called Ebenezer. And it was as if Samuel was saying, listen, we got to go back to where we went off track. And we got to get right here. And so it was as if God was saying, listen, I'm going to redeem what was lost. At Ebenezer, where you were defeated, and you were, 20 years you ignored me, 20 years you lived under the Philistine oppression influence, 20 years you stepped, whatever, down, you went down into idolatry, right? You fell into, you you crept into darkness, right? I'm going to go back there, I'm going to redeem that, and I'm going to give you help there, right? God works that way, doesn't he? Peter, Lord, I'm going to die for you tonight. Peter, listen, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, it happened. And what did Jesus do? After the resurrection, go tell Peter that I'm alive. Make sure Peter knows. And on the shore, hey, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. God took him back so he could get right to go ahead. David, Bathsheba, right? David, uh, Uriah's dad, he's out of the picture. David's married Bathsheba. She's showing there's a baby on the way. David's still king. Everything is ruling. Life is going to go on. The past is covered up. And God says, "Uh, David, the past isn't covered up. Nathan, go talk to the king. And Nathan walks in and says, David, you're the man. And David knew exactly what he was talking about. And his response was, against God and God alone, I have sinned. David had to go back so he could go ahead. And that Ebenezer stone, God takes us back to the place where he met us. Do you have an Ebenezer place in your life where you met God? God met you? I think I've shared my story before, freshman in college, you know, growing up thinking I could lose my salvation and praying a thousand times to be saved. And that evangelist was coming and his sermon title was God's Three Deadlines and I knew I was going to go down to the front of the church to get saved again. And I laid up on my bed in the dorm and I said, God, if I'm not saved, you convict me tonight like never before. And if I am saved... Give me the assurance that I'm your child today. Heard all the scary stories about people going to the meeting, leaving, dying in a car wreck, right? Heard of all. And God gave me the peace that I was his son that night. It was an Ebenezer moment in my life. Lived in rebellion against God. Period of my life where I just sinned willfully and defiantly for a period of time. Oh, I carried that condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I wrestled with that. I was a youth pastor. Man, Lord, if people knew what kind of person I really was, they'd fire me in a heartbeat. I'm not youth pastor material. Condem- condemnation, condemning thoughts, condemnation, condemning thoughts. 
And I don't know where it was, but somewhere in those early years of ministry, God just showed me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those. And I was able to forgive Kevin. I already received Christ's forgiveness. Kevin never forgave Kevin, though. Right? Ebenezer. Do you have an Ebenezer in your life where you've met with God? That Ebenezer, though, number two, give me number two, John, uh, recalled past deliverance. Thus far, thus far, God has helped us, right? The, the people, they needed to know where that Mizpah and Shen was so they could go back to that, es- that Ebenezer stone and they could say, thus far, God has helped us. They remembered. God has done something. You and I, we... Not only do we need to have an Ebenezer stone for ourselves, but like it was for them and for generations after them. The generations after the ones that were on the Mizpah mountain place, they needed to go back to that Ebenezer. No, thus far God helped us. You and I, we need to share our Ebenezer places so that the faith of others can be strengthened. Right? Some of you can relate to my stories of, of condemnation and doubt of a sh- What? Those, those places have strengthened your faith today. You have Ebenezer places where you've met with God and you need to share those so that your Ebenezer places can strengthen the faith of others. Number three. Oh, it was an anticipation of future grace. Anticipation of future grace. Thus far, God has helped us. Samuel was saying, God's helped us in the past and he'll help us here. And that Ebenezer stone... Those Ebenezer places, we remember what God has done in the past, anticipating what God, believing what God will do in the future. Because God has helped us here, we believe that God will help us here. Because God helped us then, we believe that God is going to help us now. That's the power of an Ebenezer stone. A couple weeks ago, I was in Colorado with Carter. We're hiking the Colorado Trail, and we came up to our our Ebenezer, right? Like our, our... we didn't erect that Ebenezer. A bunch of other people did. We were hiking up to the uh, mesa, the snow mesa of, outside of Lake City, Colorado. And as we're getting up to the edge of the snow mesa, there's this Ebenezer mound. Hikers have this weird tradition. They take a rock and they stack it. And they're saying, I made it thus far. Sometimes it feels that way. I made it thus far. Thus far, God has helped us. What a testimony, what a testimony. You and I who know the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I know the Lord Jesus Christ, this table is like an Ebenezer to us. This table is a declaration saying, God has helped us. At the cross, God gave his son. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He has helped us because Jesus Christ is raised and reigns forevermore, we believe he will help us again. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's your mediator, this table is for you. In a moment, we're gonna pray and our our men are gonna come forward and they're gonna serve the elements to you. We're gonna take the elements together as a declaration of our faith and our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. As we pray, would you prepare your hearts before the Lord? Men, you come forward and be prepared to serve um, the people here together. Let's, uh, let's pray, let's prepare, and then we'll partake.